You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So I want to invite you now, if you will, to join me in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, the very end of that chapter. And so you'll find a paperback Bible in the tray of the chair under, underneath that tr- uh, chair in front of you. And so I want you to, to grab hold of that. Don't be afraid. If this is one of the first times you've ever opened a Bible, welcome. Don't be afraid of the table, content, table of contents. We'll be in the, the, about the last three quarters of the entire Bible, the beginning of the New Testament, the story of how Jesus is God in the flesh enters in to redeem all things. And the very first of the four Gospels, that word gospel simply means good news, that's important, it'll come back later, uh, is Matthew. After that is Mark, Luke, and John. And so we are walking as a church through this book of the Bible, and we're, we're kind of in this, let's, let's say, uh, uh, the middle beginning of chapters of the story of Jesus. Up to this point, we've been introduced to Jesus as a a miraculous presence of God, God in the flesh, miraculously born that we'll celebrate in the next month, come to be with us and for us. And, and his ministry begins with powerful declarations of truth, powerful demonstrations of healing. And, and we've seen the first major teaching that, that Matthew draws our attention to is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Immediately following that, for the next few chapters that we've been in over the last couple of months, chapters uh, eight, nine, and uh, or eight and nine, excuse me, we we found nine different acts of power and miraculous authority. We see how Jesus is demonstrating his power and authority over all things to heal and to restore. And what we find at the very end here is, uh, if 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 there were, like I said before, there are nine different kind of acts of power and miraculous demonstrations. Inside that nine are split, uh, every third miracle is kind of split up by a declaration or a teaching about discipleship, about what it means to belong to Jesus and to call, to call oneself a follower or disciple or believer in Jesus. And so if you're not a believer, then, then if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, this is especially a good Sunday for you to be here because we're at the end of those nine, which of course is bracketed by another demonstration, a teaching about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to know Jesus and follow him. And so I want you to hear uh, the words of Jesus himself and what it means to, to be his and belong to him and, and the joy and hope that comes from seeing him for who he truly is. So I'm going to read uh, beginning in verse 35 of chapter 9 all the way to the fourth verse of chapter 10. And this is the, the, the functional closing of this, this section and, and the beginning of the next section that we'll spend our, the next month in, in chapter 10, which is the second major discourse, the second significant chunk of teaching and instruction that Jesus gives to his disciples about who he is and who God is. And so we're, we're in this transition point between these acts of power and then this next uh, profound teaching as he sends out the disciples. So you'll kind of hear him wrapping up what he's done before and beginning what he's doing next, beginning in verse 35 of Matthew chapter 9. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. 
Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. I pray that the words we just read become by the power of God, the very words of God to his people this morning, more than words and ink on a page, but the very voice of God to you and to me. Again, we see the primacy of Jesus teaching and proclaiming the good news. I say again because if you'll remember at the end of that first section of the public ministry of Jesus and at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, at the very end of chapter 4, in verse 23, it says, He, that is Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. That sounds almost word for word, word for word for what we just heard. Am I right? And so it says, in conclusion, that his fame, that is Jesus' fame, thread, spread throughout all Syria and They brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and even from beyond the Jordan. So the the conclusion to that first section about Jesus' birth and his, his public ministry calling disciples to himself ends with this little summary of what Jesus does primarily goes about teaching and proclaiming the good news of this kingdom that has come, that he is bringing as a king even. And we find the exact same thing said in verse 35 that we just read, as if to say, this is the wrap-up. This is the concluding, right, this is the, com- the concluding thought to this act of great power and the demonstration of miraculous signs and wonders all throughout. And also you see in that first ending, the mention of the crowds, the mention of what God, what God was doing in the presence of Jesus drew the crowd. It was the, it was the greatest attraction at that time on earth. And so it mentions the crowds as a way of kind of summarizing how God was demonstrating and present with his people in Jesus Christ. Well, there was a mention of the crowds again in the phrases that we just read. Did you hear it? Verse 36, when Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed, they were helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And so I want you, as I told you as we began this passage, uh, at the beginning of chapter 8, what I've told you, these exercises of authority might for many of you redeem authority and redeem power, because I know for many of you the thought of power and authority just brings up thoughts of people who have abused them against you, right? They have misused them, and look what we find out here, is that Jesus exercises his authority through compassion. Right? I don't know what you would do with the greatest power in the world, but notice what Jesus does with all the power in the universe. He demonstrates compassion. 
He offers words of encouragement, acts of healing, and drawing people to himself. And this, I think, redeems for us even the most corrupt and awful abuses of authority that we can imagine. We begin to see that it wasn't the authority itself that was awful. It was the way that it was used because the most sanctified and redeemed, holy and perfect exercise of authority we find in Jesus, that he used his authority to give commands. But do you remember some of them that we've heard, right? Some of the commands he gives, his authoritative commands are words like, be healed, right? His, his authoritative commands are words like, have no fear, be healed, get up and walk. You get the idea? This is the perfect authority of God demonstrated for you and for me, and it is demonstrated in a great act of compassion. The authority of Jesus is visible here in his compassion. Jesus exercises his authority by demonstrating great love. That word compassion carries with it this uh, it, something that in, in, the, in the English it, we don't quite get, right? We, we think of compassion, the word passion or, or passion or pathos or suffering or emotion, and, and the word calm is kind of this idea that someone's like having suffering or emotion with, and that's, that's that can be helpful, but, but that isn't the word here. The, the word that, that, that is used here to describe what Jesus had for these people is, is more like the words of a, a drawing or moving in his bowels, quite literally. His bowels were being moved. Now, I, I, again, I know that, that, sounds, that sounds terse and awful, but, but think for a minute just, just what's being communicated here. Like, what happens when something in your bowels takes over, Right? It's as if to say something, you can't go on, you can't just ignore it. It's something that you cannot look over for very long. It's something that takes, it's a part of who you are. It's a part of how God created your body to work. And notice what we see about Jesus here. He looks at the despair and distress of these people, and it's as if something deep inside of him that cannot be stopped expresses love expresses deep sorrow. And before we go any further, just think about that phrase that he goes to the cities and villages offering good news, preaching, teaching, healing, every kind of thing that people were struggling with, and he did it all because he saw these people and they had compassion. And, and before we go any further, I know that many of you might have asked this question and wondered, does anybody care about the awful things that have happened in my life? That, that phrase, harassed and helpless, different translators try to put this into words that, that are maybe helpful, worried, dejected. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever wondered if anyone cared? Distressed, downcast. Have you ever been there? Then before we go any further, hear the good news of Jesus here, that that if you've ever wondered, does anyone care? Does anyone know or care how difficult my life really is? Does anyone know about the pain and sorrow and suffering that I endure? Hear the good news. Yes. Yes, someone cares and his name is Jesus. And this story tells us about what he does in response. And we already saw some of that, didn't we? Like last week when we saw the powerful acts of of miraculous signs and wonders to, to bring the dead to life, but then also the woman who had this, seek, this kind of secret, deep thing that, that, she, that maybe no one even knew about, and yet Jesus, in his power, both raises the dead, but also shows compassion to this woman who has a need that 
that she hasn't been able to maybe to express to anyone. She reaches out to Jesus, and what an amazing demonstration of just the kindness and gentleness of God in Jesus. So, Jesus demonstrates his compassion, what I think in at least four different ways here. The first one, Jesus demonstrates his compassion for his people by telling them encouraging good news. Verse 35, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. Now, that's, that already is a theme that's shown up from the beginning. He's in Galilee. He's in the outskirts, right? He's in Podunk. He's in the nowhere. He's, in, he's not in the New York City. He's not, in, he's not in the limelight. He's not on Broadway, right? He's not in the Vegas Strip. He's not in a, a big headliner show. He's going to the nobodies and the outcasts. It's to them that he's going. He, he's demonstrating great love and compassion for the people that might have otherwise been forgotten. So he's going through all these cities and villages, these, these podunk places that no one's ever heard of, and he's teaching in their synagogues, instructing them about who God is and what God is like, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So he's going to these places, giving them encouraging good news. That word gospel uh, it, it's, it's really just one word here. We, we have to add words to get it to, like this, this word proclaiming the gospel. That's not really how, how it is. It, it's literally a verb too, right? It, it's, more, it's more accurate to say that Jesus was going around gospeling. He was, he was gospeling to people. That, that's what the word evangelizomai, or we, we, we get the word evangelize, right? Which literally is to gospel. And so Jesus was going around gospeling. Well, well, why is that important? You've heard me say this before, but briefly I'll say this, is that in the first few centuries, the Roman Empire, as it was exercising its power in conquest around uh, the known world at the time, when, when, they would, when they would conquer a place, they would, they would go from place to place, and they would have a herald, someone who would come to them and say, good news, Rome has won, right? Good news, Rome is here, right? And even if you're being conquered and raped and pillaged by the Roman government, they'd say, good news, right? Good news, Rome is here, right? You're now Roman, right? Congratulations, good news, even if it wasn't. And so the earliest Christians grabbed that word, right? Jesus, we even find here teaching them how to, to like see this word very radically different. Yes, there is good news. Yes, there is a king that is coming, and it's not Caesar, and he doesn't come by power and authority and abuse. He comes by leading and sacrifice. And instead of sending his subjects to die for his empire, he runs out in front of them and dies in their place. And that, he says to these people who, who were living in a harsh living conditions under the Roman government, would have been good news. And Jesus shows compassion by going to these people and reminding them there is hope. This world is not all there is. He encourages them, builds them up with good news about who God is and what God is doing. I might just simply add to some of these compassionate descriptions of Jesus, then so should we. Jesus also demonstrates his compassion for his people by healing everything that ails them. Now that phrase you saw there, again, we saw in uh, chapter 4, it, it says he was healing every disease and every affliction. Uh, that, that, that might not be as helpful to read through. He didn't, it doesn't mean here he, he healed every single disease and every single affliction. Instead, it's more of he healed every kind of disease, every kind of affliction. That is, that is it carries with this, this meaning like that there was nothing that was brought to Jesus that Jesus couldn't ultimately heal and restore. And that, we see, is a great act of compassion. That was an act of love and care. Deep in the guts of Jesus was this will and desire 
to bring comfort, to bring restoration to these people who didn't have it. Again, I would add to these acts of compassion, and so should we. Jesus also demonstrates his compassion for his people by inviting them to look to him for help. Did you, did you see that he was healing every kind of disease? Because ultimately what he saw was that they were harassed and helpless, and they were like a sheep without a shepherd. Now we'll come back to that because that in some sense is the central focus of this passage, but, but we'll, we'll come back to it. It'll make more sense when we, when we see all the pieces around it. Verse 37, it says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. A couple of side notes here, but, but not before I, I explain at least something amazing happening here. He's saying, the needs are great. Don't be shocked as you look around and realize the need for help is great. Right? The need for help and relief in the world outpaces the number of helpers that can grant it. That isn't supposed to shock us. It's as if to say, the fact that people are helpless, the fact that people are distressed, the fact that people feel harassed, the fact, the fact that people are in despair and are discouraged, that shouldn't shock you. There's, the need is great. The problem is that there are not enough people to help. And yet he says, here's what I want you to do. Call out to God that more helpers would be raised up. Call out to God. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out the laborers into the harvest. So a few things here. One, I want to invite you. This is what uh, last year we invited all of our, our covenant members uh, to, to do something that we learned from an Armenian missionary and a, a missionary partner that we've had through, through different, different uh, networks of, of churches. And, and so you might have heard of, of this thing, but we, we, kind of, we kind of jumped in on this. But, uh, but I asked all of our covenant members, and I'll invite you to do the same thing, at 10.02, set an alarm. And so you'll see sometimes when people are doing the call to worship, some of us are like checking our watches or something. We're not texting our friends. Well, some of you might be, but anyway. And that is because in Luke chapter 10, verse 2, this same command we find, that Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Pray to the Lord of harvest that he would send out workers into the harvest. And so at 10.02, we have that as a reminder. Now, I guess technically you could set your timer here for 9.38 or 9.37, but it's in two different verses, whereas in Luke it's in one, I think. Uh, and 10.02 just sounds catchier, plus we already have t-shirts that say that. Anyway, <laughs> if you don't want to do that, set it for 9.37 or 9.38. That's up to you. But the idea is that we want to take this very seriously, is that the, the need is great, Look, the, the people in your life that are currently living without the hope that there is a Redeemer, the people in your family that are not currently living in light of the hope that we have that Jesus will make all things new, the people in our city, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, you name it, the, the people in our lives that are in need and feel helpless because they don't know that there is a Redeemer are great. And there's no way, there's no way no way that we could ever be the helpers for all of those people that we need to be. And notice he says, that's okay. That shouldn't shock you. Instead, look to the Lord of the harvest and ask God that he would raise up more workers. And so this is a prayer for us. We ask God, uh, 
Lord, raise up more Kids Connection volunteers. Lord, raise up more gospel community leaders. Lord, raise up more pastors and church planters. Lord, raise up more missionaries. Lord, raise up, there's, we need more, Lord. And the Lord is not shocked by that. In fact, it's as if he's kind of waiting for you and I to pray, and not just pray, pray earnestly. To genuinely believe that this world is hopeless unless the Lord calls out the helpers. And so, like the others, if, if Jesus demonstrates compassion to his people by inviting them to look to him for help, then same thing. So should we. Jesus demonstrates this compassion for his people by what he encourages them with, what he heals them from, and then what he calls them to, because this is, in the next section, those first four verses of chapter 10, we find a radical list. It doesn't sound radical, but we'll get to that in a moment. Jesus also demonstrates his compassion for his people by calling us out of darkness to be his. Well, I say out of darkness because he calls them to himself, but that's because 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says it this way, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. To what end? For what purpose, you might ask? In order that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who did what? Who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter here says that, and that's something, right? Because I don't know if you noticed, the beginning of all the lists that the Gospels tell us about the, the number of the 12 apostles always begins with one guy. Did you hear it? He called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, heal every disease and every affliction. Same thing. Nothing. Nothing was withheld from these original 12 apostles. And the names of these are what? And first one is who? Simon, who is called Peter. Now, we're going to hear more about him in Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 18. It's going to get real fun. He's going to be one of your favorites, I think, or your least favorite. Nothing in the middle. But isn't it interesting, as Peter recounts who he is now because of Christ, and he uses that language, call. He called. And Simon didn't just say, he called me out of my profession of fishing, right? Peter didn't just say, he called me out of uh, being called Simon to be, being called Peter. Rock, Rocky, the rock upon which Jesus will build his church. He didn't just call me from one profession to another. What does Peter tell us that this calling actually was? It was a calling out of darkness. And a call to, and I love this language, and he called to him. You get this picture, Jesus calls these people to himself. And then you hear this other possessive word right after. Do you hear that? He called to him. His, his 12 disciples. He called to himself his disciples. They belong to him. Jesus demonstrates his compassion for his people by calling them out of whatever else they were wandering in and through, and he calls them to be his, to be his own, to be united with him. So, friend, be encouraged by this amazing picture of compassion. Does God care? Matthew wants you to know. Yes. And here's how you know. Here's how you know Jesus cares. He calls us into a new identity, a new sense of self. He comes to us in, our, in, our, in the far-off places, in the places maybe we think were obscure and unknown. He goes to all of those cities and villages. He comes with good news, 
Good news that there is, there is a king and a kingdom that has come in him, and it's better than all the worldly kingdoms. And he comes with the ability to heal and fix whatever ails us. Whatever. Every single thing. And then he comes to call us to himself. He's not just using us to get stuff done. Did you hear? He, he makes us his own. That's what it means to follow Jesus. We have a new purpose because we are now his beloved possession. Did you hear that in the words of did you hear the his in that verse 9 of 1 Peter? Chosen a people for his own possession. Where'd that come from? That's right out of this prophetic literature of Deuteronomy that tells us what God's restoration would look like. He's going to make us his own. We're going to be his people and he's going to be our God. And all of that, friend, is the answer to your question, does God care? Oh, yes. He has compassion, deep Deep in the guts of Jesus, he has love and care for his people. So, I want to kind of turn then and spend the rest of our time thinking about two profound pictures that are good news for us in light of who Jesus is. One in the language of shepherd and one in the language of harvest. When, what I think you will see even more provocatively is how that plays out in this list of disciples. So, this language of shepherd is not new. Matthew is calling back to the heritage of the Israelites all the way back to when Moses was passing on the, 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 his mantle, his torch, his office of leadership to another person. It says, Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation. It's as if, he, it's as if maybe he's even calling for the Lord of the harvest, right? It says, that man who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, in order that what? The congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. That is that these people had been delivered from bondage, and yet now they were wandering. And who was it that was going to lead them into the promised land? Well, well Moses, with great deep love for these people, cries out to God, Lord, don't leave them. Don't leave them like a sheep or like sheep that have been abandoned by their shepherd, right? Like, imagine you get this picture of, of, of these sheep being gathered together, right? And then, and then if the shepherd leaves, well, what has the shepherd just done? The, the shepherd has just arranged an amazing meal for all of the predators in the area, right? Like, hey, all the predators, I got all these together. By the way, I'm going to leave. Ciao, right? Bon appetit. That's the picture here, that, that there's these... There's this flock of sheep that have been gathered together, and, and Moses says, I don't want these people to be left. And the true and better Moses you see now in Jesus with compassion looks and says the same thing. But this picture of the people of God needing a shepherd, needing to be cared for, you'll see for the rest of the Old Testament. You'll see it in the Psalm, uh, the, the 23rd Psalm, the, the shepherd's Psalm, the, the cry out to God that we would be cared for, that he would be our shepherd. But but even then, you, you see this, this picture of the shepherd specifically in King David. If you want to, to uh, read this, this this week, there's one of the most powerful stories in the Bible is the story of David and Goliath. It's in 1 Samuel 17. And, and we find that the, the people of God are being harassed, quite literally taunted every day 
by a champion of the Philistines whose name is Goliath. And they come and he repeated these taunts before the King Saul and all of God's people. And, and then David, this shepherd boy, this, you're meant to go, oh, a shepherd, that's, that's interesting. Shepherd boy goes to King Saul and he says, let no one's heart fail because of the taunts of this man. Your servant, right? That's a kind and generous way of saying me, right? Whenever you speak to yourself in the third person, it's either really, really humble or really arrogant. This, is, this hopefully is the humble one. He says, your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul the king said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he's been a man of war from his youth, right? He's been killing people since he was your age. But David says to Saul, and listen to the powerful words of David, your servant, me, right, David, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and I struck him and I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear. He will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. You've got to love King Saul's response. Go. Lord be with you. <laughs> you hear it? You begin to hear the... The shepherd boy David, who wrote the, presumably the 23rd Psalm, the, the shepherd psalm, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me behind, beside still. Well, you hear it? I mean, that sounds pretty, but do you hear his ferocity? Do you hear the language of what a good shepherd is? He says, look, the Lord's delivered me, and if he defies me, I'll grab him by the beard and kill him. I will kill him with my own hands. And so when Matthew comes along and says, and remembers Jesus' words, as he looks at those people and he says, he has compassion on them. Why? Because it's like their harassment and their helplessness is that of a flock of sheep who have no shepherd. A group of people, these helpless sheep, who don't have a ferocious shepherd, who has a crook to guide and correct and instruct and carry them on, but a rod to defeat the enemy. Elsewhere, you find in Ezekiel chapter 34, and I, again, I commend this to you for your, for your reading, the entirety of the chapter is a reflection of God's prophetic word to his people through Ezekiel about this very thing. The word of the Lord came to me, that is Ezekiel. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, right? This would have been the religious leaders of the day that Ezekiel saw as people who were taking advantage of God's people. Thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. Do you hear the compassionate heart of God? Saying to 
the prophet Ezekiel to tell the religious leaders of, of leaders of today, you have not reflected me. You've used these people for your own gain rather than cared for them. So then verse 5 says they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search for them and seek them. And then what follows is a prophetic word against those awful shepherds. Verse 11 says that God says, Behold, now I myself will search for my sheep. I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and, dick, uh, and thick darkness. Have you ever wondered, does God care? And did you hear the prophetic vision of what God will do in Jesus? He will take those that are scattered, helpless, harassed, and he will draw them back to himself and make them, I love that language, his people, his people. Make them his very own. So, friend, Hear the good news when Jesus says this. He will be the good shepherd. He is going to be the one who loves and cares for them. He will be the one who sees their hurt and begins to move towards them to help them. But here's the second thing. Not only is the imagery of shepherd embodied by Jesus, but the image of harvest. Did you hear that? He flips the script on this. If you, if you go back to the Old Testament, the language of harvest, and you'll even see this in a few chapters later, the language of, language of harvest is always the language of judgment. After all, right, I don't know if this is still cool anymore, but like in my day, uh, around Halloween, everyone's favorite thing to dress up as was the grim reaper, right? As if to say, the harvester, ooh, ooh right, that's, that's a problem, that, that doesn't sound fun. And notice what Jesus does. He takes the language of judgment. That is, there is a harvest that coming. It is coming. There is a reaping that is on the way. And what does he do? He says, it won't be what you think. When I come as the harvester, it won't be to sow judgment and to destroy. It will be to reap a bountiful and fruitful celebration. I will come and I will, by God, and with my friends and people who are sent out into the harvest, reap a wonderful reward. Don't miss the good news about Jesus in this language. He is the good shepherd. He is the one who has come to take those who are harassed and scattered. And he is also the harvester, not the one who has come to reap in judgment, but the one to gather in in grace. Hear the good news. And if that's not all, he gives us a profound picture of what that will look like in the next four verses in the list of disciples. First, it says that he gives them all the authority that he has himself to cast out these demons, to, to carry on his ministry as, a, as though a picture of, of what, what is to come. That until, and we find here for the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, until he is himself re resurrected, Jesus says, you're going to serve alongside me in these powerful ways, and then you're going to join me in the ministry of proclaiming, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom that has come. But in the meantime, we, we have this picture of what that shepherd gathering his sheep, calling them to himself, looks like, and it comes in a form of a list. Now I know if you've 
made an attempt to read the Bible. Anytime you get to a list, right, a genealogy, uh, you find yourself in the beginning or the end of Book of Numbers, right, or you find yourself, as we saw in Ezra and Nehemiah, lists of people. I know at, at first glance you might just kind of glaze over and, and kind of go to sleep. I, I get it. No one loves lists, except some people do love spreadsheets. So maybe they love lists. And maybe they saw what Matthew said here, but I, I want to warn you for just a moment that this list isn't an idle list that you glaze over and move on. This list, if you'll remember the, remember the first list that we went across in the Gospel of Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus, right? You might have glazed over, but do you remember there were little sermons built into the list? In the list of the genealogy of, genealogy of Jesus, right, were prostitutes, were outsiders, remember that? And yet, what was that meant to share that? Even in those little bitty asides in that list, we're meant to see, oh, Jesus is coming to take the place. He's coming to join the place of a sinful lineage, right? That, that's the point of the list. Well, well, we have something similar here, but I want to warn you, it's, it's difficult. It's especially difficult for where we are in the world. He gives them a radical new calling and a radical new loyalty. And Matthew is very clear, and the other gospel writers do this as well, but Matthew's very clear in the way that he uses words to draw attention to this. Now, first, the beautiful thing is Jesus doesn't ask for volunteers, right? He doesn't, and he doesn't offer like a threatening, heart-wrenching plea. If you don't come with me, everything's going to fall apart, right? Doesn't do that. He doesn't use guilt. He doesn't use shame. He doesn't appeal to obligation, doesn't use any of those things, does he? He says, pray, and then trust the Father to move those who he will call. Guilt, manipulation, and obligation can get some people motivated for a short while. But ultimately, the call of Jesus is what makes disciples. The very word of Jesus to his people is what makes them new and makes them his own. And Jesus calls these people out of their old lives Let's look closely there. And I, again, I want to say this. What I'm about to say is something I, I've, I've kind of watched, and as a pastor, I, I want to say I'm concerned about, and I want to try to apply this to, to our particular circumstance at the moment. It gave a list of people, and you'll notice the way he identified most of them was just by their family, which is common, right? It'd be as if I listed you and I added your last name, right? So-and-so, last name. But did you notice... There were three people in this list that weren't mentioned that way. Did you see them? So you get the list of brothers. This is good news, right? This is good news for families. Hey, you can follow Jesus and get along with your family, right? That's good news for Thanksgiving, maybe. I don't know. Good luck. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called, he's always listed first. He becomes kind of the, one of the leaders in an area, and kind of in prominence, Peter, James, and John typically fill that role. Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew. So you hear him, he's like listing them as family members, friends, or, or kind of who they are, essentially their last name. And then he gets to this other part, and he says, and then Thomas, and then what? Matthew, the tax collector. That's one. James does it again, same son of Alphaeus. Okay, right, that's his last name, right? And Thaddeus. And then Simon, what? The zealot. And then he adds one more title. Judas Iscariot, what? The one who betrayed. 
This list is not something we glaze over. Instead, this list is actually evidence of Jesus' compassion. It's evidence of what it means to be called by him. Because in order to do a little work here, we did this earlier about what it means to be a tax collector. And Matthew has a profound testimony when he first introduces himself into the story. He doesn't say what the other gospel writers say. Instead, he says that Jesus saw a man, right, restoring his own humanity and immediately invited all of his sinful tax-collecting friends all to a party where Jesus shows up, right? It's amazing. And so we, we know a little bit about this, but imagine it this way. This is, this is Matthew, who the oppressive government, the government who is overreached and taken over, and Matthew has actually turned against his people and sided with them. The oppressors, the, the government, he, he's, he's sided with them. You see, the tax collectors would have been, uh, in this case, the, the people who, 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 who didn't have a problem betraying their own people for loyalty of the big Roman government. And his own peers despised him for it. But then here's the second one, Simon the Zealot. Now we know a little bit about what that word means, but, but even in its most literal and simple sense, a zealot is a person who's fanatical, right? Just full of zeal. It's a fanatic. So Simon the fanatic. Well, fanatical about what? Well, well Josephus, uh, one of the first and second century historians and other historians we find tell us that there was a movement, a, a political movement of zealots that their whole goal was to overthrow the oppressor, to overthrow the government. They were Jewish nationalists who believed that ultimately the government needed to be overthrown and the replacement would be the Jewish law. And in place of the government, there just simply needed to be Jewish laws, Jewish traditions, Jewish customs, and Jewish culture. And that was the solution. Hear me very clearly. In the list of Jesus' disciples is the most radically big government, totalitarian, and the most anti-government, nationalistic person you can imagine. All in the list of followers of Jesus. Now I say this is delicate because we're not really good at talking about it, and I hope you'll show me grace in this. You've been very kind to me as a pastor, and, and, and when, I, when I say this, I, I care and I worry, um, but if this offends you and it bothers you, my mom's visiting for Thanksgiving. She, she'll still think I'm handsome and smart today, so... Imagine as fragmented as we are, not just polarized right and left politically and culturally, but fragmented, extreme even. Now, on one hand, I want to be very careful. I don't want to be alarmist. I just want to encourage you. Most of the time when there are extreme movements, there's like a really small, there's really small percentage of people on this far end and this far end. They're the loudest and get the most attention. Eh, eat, go easy, right? Like in an emotionally healthy system, you don't let the crybaby get what they want, Right? That'd be kind of like if we stopped everything we were doing every time someone in Kids Connection was crying, right? That's a problem, okay? What do you do? You go, okay, what's, use your words, right? Which is a good strategy for extremism, right? Okay, use your words, right? So I don't want, you to, be, I don't want to be alarmist here, but, but I, I want to tell you something. As I've gotten to know and, and speak with pastors and church leaders over the last couple of years, there are many different churches that have closed and been ripped apart by political partisan fights. They don't exist anymore. And I believe they don't exist anymore because they've never read this list. Imagine your radical liberal friend thinking big government is ultimately the way to the good life. It fixes all the problems in the world. Right, just accumulate as much power together and it will fix all the human rights abuses. It'll fix racism. It'll give universal health care. It'll, it'll complete 
completely repair all of the economic inequality. It'll fix every problem. It'll fix the climate. It'll fix the environment. And it'll bring about this absolute utopia brought about by the big government that we've all built together. Now imagine your radical MAGA Trumpist Republican friend believing that ultimately going back to our old values is the way to the good life. You can see him on January 6th wearing t-shirts and waving flags that say, Jesus is my savior, Trump is my president. Now imagine both of those people laying all of that down to follow Jesus. And if you're like, man, those differences are extreme. Yeah, you're right. But I want you to see there's a name for the one who lays down his secular, progressivistic ideology for the sake of Jesus. And on this list, his name is Matthew. I say secular or progressivistic, you could probably add a better word to this, but think of it as it's a godless attempt to accumulate power to bring about utopia. Don't worry, it's, it's a story that started in, it's called Tower of Babel, right? If we just get enough power together, we'll fix all the problems. Oh, sure, right? We've seen this before. But there's a list for the person who thinks that like this godless progressivistic ideology will solve all the problems, where there's a name for that person on this list, and his name is Matthew. His name is Matthew. And he makes it on the list of disciples. There's also a name for the one who lays down their religio-nationalistic ideology for the sake of Jesus. And his name, Simon the Zealot. Can you imagine these two extremes living in harmony together? Can you imagine people in such polar opposite views of the world and humanity living in harmony? Because if you can't, I want to introduce you to Jesus. I want to introduce you to Jesus. Because after all, if you think these, I mean, think what we find out about the zealots is that they were actively, in many ways, terroristically, actively trying to overthrow the government. They would have been plotting to kill the tax collectors, right? They would have been plotting to overthrow this. And all that, like, we need, to, we need to enforce Jewish law, which means killing the traitor. And look, they're both on the list. Because after all, if you think like that's a really odd couple, those two things can't be reconciled, right? How can two polar opposite views of politics in the world and of authority and of culture, how can two polar opposite views come together and the answer is Jesus? Because if you think it's an odd couple and if you think it's a miracle, right, to reconcile MAGA Republicans with radical leftists, right? If you think that's a radical reconciliation, you haven't seen God and his sinful people, If you think there's an odd couple in the world, there is no greater chasm between the perfection and holiness of a righteous creator and the rebellious and sinful nature of humanity. And Jesus brought them both together. And now they're his. Friend, you think the radical extremes in the world can't be reconciled. You haven't met Jesus, who has reconciled you and me to a God, not out of spite, but did you get this? Out of an act of compassion. He actually liked it. I can't think of a more beautiful picture of what the church of Jesus Christ could look like than this. Can you? Politically diverse. Right? People who have very different views of the world, very different views of family and education, right? Very different, right? Very different views of all sorts of things. And all of those views, all of those ideologies, they lay aside for Jesus to love him and belong to him and his people. I can't think of a more beautiful picture for us. Can you? 
Now I know maybe some of you in this room, you hear that and in your first response is, yeah, but. Yeah, but. Okay, I hear what you're saying. I, I, yes, I know Jesus loves those political opponents of mine. I know Jesus loves, okay, I get it. Jesus loves them, I get it. And then, and then you say, yeah, but. And you're like, I'll go along with you. I'll go along with you until ultimately these people bother me too much and they're evil and wicked and, and then I can't anymore. There is a person, a name of one person on this list who pretends to hear and respond to the call of Jesus and ultimately says, yeah, but. And his name is Judas. And he'll use Jesus to get what he wants until what really owns his heart comes calling. Gospel of Mark, Jesus speaks at the Last Supper of this man. It says, woe to the one who betrays the Son of Man. It would have been better that he had not been born. Woe to the one who says, okay, Jesus, yeah, but. Do you see the profound power of this list? Do you see what Matthew's saying? This extreme ideology over here and this extreme ideology over here evidently come together in Jesus. It's not that their disagreements went away. You know it didn't. Right? We find them arguing about all sorts of stuff. You know this was one of them. And yet, evidently, they laid it aside for Jesus. And friend, I don't even, like, again, I don't want to make a political statement. I don't want to, like, I don't even have any problem with your ideology, right? I'm not even trying to break that apart, right? Again, I tell this regularly after an election. You'd be insulted to find out how little I care about who you voted for. You'd be insulted. I just don't care. I care where your soul is. I care who, who reigns in your heart. And so if those are connected, eek, okay, fair enough. Let's talk about that. But in the meantime, in the meantime, I don't care about your ideology or how you think the world can be fixed. I just care that it's in the pile of stuff you've left behind you for Jesus. I want it to be maybe on the list of things you do in your life, but I want it to be so far behind you that you see Jesus and his people as ultimate and supreme. Why would I say that? Why, why would anyone lay down those things for Jesus? Did you hear the answer in John chapter 10, verse 11? Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Why would you lay down these things, these loyalties, these things that promise good things for you? Why would you lay them down for Jesus? Because the good shepherd, John 10, 11 says, lays down his life for sheep. And here's the thing. Follow out, like, follow the good life in your world, right? And maybe it's not political for you, right? Maybe you're like, oh, that doesn't even apply to you. Maybe, maybe if you were on this list, it wouldn't say, you know, you know, X the Republican or X the Democrat. It would just say, like, X the narcissist, right? Or, like, maybe if you're on the list, it would just say, you the consumeristic individualist, right? right? Maybe it would just say, you the contrarian. I don't know what it could be for you, the thing that you find hope in that you really love. And here's what I want to tell you. That thing, as Peter tells us, is darkness, and however loyal it demands that you will be, it will never lay down its life for you. Friend, see Jesus. Hear him calling you to himself today. Reconciling, not just political extremes, but reconciling sinful humanity to a righteous God. Like a shepherd gathering his sheep. There's a name for each of these things. There's a name for all of them. But friend, there is also a good shepherd. There is also a harvester that comes in compassion and grace. There is one who laid down his life for his sheep. 
And he's on this list too. His name's Jesus. And he's worth, he's worth the loss of everything. Because when he had the opportunity to lay down his life for you, he gladly laid it down. He lived the perfect life that you and I could never live, loyal and faithful and obedient to God, and laid it down for you and for me. And he took it up again in resurrection so that we would know that what he has accomplished for us as our good shepherd is received and good by God. And if we look to him, we will find true meaning. If we look to him, we will find, even in this room, true unity. If we look to him, we will find hope, comfort. If we look to him, his name's Jesus, we realize there's a story being told of a God who draws his people back to him from however far they've come, and oh, by the way, in the tradition of David, he destroys the enemy. He destroys the enemy. Let me finish with the very last bit of Ezekiel 34. Remember the, told you the chapter I commended you about the shepherd? Verse 25, I will, make a, I will make with them a new covenant of peace, and I will banish the wild beasts from the land in order that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing. And I will send down showers in their season, and they shall be showers of blessing. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And the earth shall yield its increase, and they shall be secure in the land. And they shall know that I am the Lord. When I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslaved them. They shall no more be prey to the nations, nor the beasts of the land shall devour them. They shall dwell securely, and no one will make them afraid. And I will provide for them renowned plantations so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land. They'll no longer suffer the reproach of the nations, and they will know that I am the Lord their God because I am with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord. And you are my sheep human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord. Thank God that the fulfillment of this prediction has come to us in Jesus, who has come to gather us back to the Father, reconciling us to him even in light of our sin, and then reconciling us even now and for eternity, protecting us from the hand of the enemy by silencing his accusations grabbing him by the beard and beating him to death. Let's thank God for this in Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are in Christ the good shepherd. You have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. God, thank you so much that you, in your mercy, would call this list of nobodies and rejects and sworn mortal enemies to follow you. God, let that captivate our imagination. Let us dream about the kind of reconciliation we could experience because we've been called to you. Lord, this is a difficult place to live, and these are, like every time, these are challenging times for us to love and trust you. But Lord, we, we trust that this is not a surprise for you. And whether it was Matthew and Simon or, or even us in this room and even around the globe, Lord, 
let us be a part of a movement that is so radically loyal to your finished work as the good, compassionate shepherd that everything else just seems smaller. God, forgive us for the times when we've been loyal to lesser things. Thank you that Matthew and Simon and Judas all serve as an example of people that you're not afraid to draw near to. You're not afraid to, you're not afraid to become intimate with these people, regardless of the rest of their story. Thank you. Do you do that for us? In Christ, you've come to be with us and for us. Thank you now that we have a radical new identity, a radical new sense of self. We are now the sheep, the sheep that the shepherd has laid down his own life to save. Now we rest in his pasture. Like the prophet Ezekiel says, we sleep, we sleep peacefully in the woods. We're not afraid of the enemy. Because Jesus, the good and better David, has come and destroyed that enemy for us. Thank you that now in Christ, the good shepherd has delivered us from sin, Satan, and hell. And now we rest in his good protection. Thank you that that rest means that we are now disciples and followers of you. We're guaranteed to be yours forever and ever. You've called us out of what we were once entangled in what we were once enslaved in, and you've called us to yourself and to new joy and to new life. Thank you, Good Shepherd, that you die for us, those that need it and yet don't deserve it. Thank you for this grace and compassion. Thank you for this, Jesus. Amen.